When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Cleo, tell the people who you are. My name's Cleo Levin, and I work on Thrilling Tales as a researcher. Before she worked at Slate, Cleo used to work at a trade magazine for the fashion industry. Right when she first got there, in 2015, she noticed something. Pantone had just designated Marsala its color of the year, and designers responded by rushing out clothes in that color. Everyone had something in Marsala, and unless you knew that Pantone had named Marsala, you'd have no idea what they're talking about because they're going, here's our Marsala coat. And then you go, oh, yes, <laughs> lovely. In case you don't know what color Marsala is, which I didn't, it's sort of a deep red-brown, like the wine. Anyway, Cleo was struck by the fact that Pantone framed its color of the year choices as an act of trend spotting, identifying a color that seemed to be in the zeitgeist, seemed to match the moment. But then the effect was to make everyone in fashion get in line and make something in Marsala. Or in 2018, ultraviolet. Or in 2019, living coral. Or in 2020, classic blue. Is it descriptive or prescriptive? Like, do people really believe that blue will have some kind of big cultural impact on us next year? Or is it just these brands saying, Pantone has said this, we know that Pantone is important, so we better make a shit ton of blue stuff. Over time, it just became increasingly clear that you can't forecast a trend. Like, you can barely forecast weather. No one knows really what's going to happen. So it just all started to feel very Emperor's New Clothes-y. In December, Pantone named its 2021 Colors of the Year. It couldn't limit itself to just one. They were ultimate gray and illuminating, or for the layperson, gray and yellow. The idea that gray and yellow could somehow capture the year ahead in all its anticipated complexities was, for Cleo, a bit much. And you could not abide that. It just felt like the last straw. Pantone's founder once said, God created the world in seven days, and on the eighth day, he called Pantone to put color into it. That seems a little presumptuous. Who put Pantone in charge of color? And why should Pantone decide what color, sorry, colors, define 2021? What is Pantone anyway? No, really, I'm serious. What is it? No one really knows what Pantone does. Most people are aware of color of the year and maybe of their merchandise, but most people don't really know what they do as a company. So I think that's also very handy for them because they have this authority that's kind of amorphous because people know they have something to do with color but don't exactly know what. So what is Pantone? What does it do? And why should we care about its annual color pronouncements? We're about to shed some full spectrum light on these questions. I'm Seth Stevenson. Welcome to Thrilling Tales of Modern Capitalism. Today on the show, the color of money is Pantone 5803C. 
In the 1950s, Larry Herbert worked for a commercial printing company. One of his biggest frustrations was how to communicate with his clients about their color choices. Which blue exactly did they want to use in their printed materials? Oh, like a sky blue. Okay, what exactly does that mean? Now, it happened that one thing this printing company did was make color cards for cosmetics manufacturers so that cosmeticians could talk about different colors by just pointing to the card instead of, like, opening up a lipstick. Larry Herbert's big insight was to realize how useful this type of color reference card could be if he broadened it out to include all sorts of contexts and all sorts of colors. Larry, at the time, recognized that having color standards like that for the print industry was a really terrific idea. There was no international standard. Ron Potesky was a senior vice president at Pantone for several years, up until 2017. And by the way, he has a confession to make about his performance on a test that all Pantone employees are required to take. Yes, yeah, so there's a test called a Munsell Farnsworth test, and I did take it. And I will be very honest with you now that I'm no longer at Pantone, I, I failed miserably. I actually was identified as being highly colorblind. So, you know, that was a dark, deep secret for 10 years while I was there. Give Ron a break. He was on the business side. He wasn't in what they call a color decision role. Anyway, Ron says that Larry Herbert's insight about color reference cards led Herbert to develop a comprehensive color system in which each color got assigned a number. That way, printers and clients would have a shared reference when they talked to each other, an industry standard, so that a color would mean the same thing all the way from a designer's vision to the printed item. Herbert printed up a book of these numbered color samples. It had something like 40 colors in it, and that was the beginning. Larry Herbert bought out the printing company in 1962, renamed it Pantone, and dedicated himself to evangelizing for what he called the Pantone matching system. He was incredibly successful. By the 1970s, Pantone had sold 100,000 copies of his color books, printing them at its headquarters in New Jersey. There are other regional color systems around the world, but Pantone's has become the most internationally recognized standard. So now you can say Pantone 3515C, and pretty much wherever you are, you're going to get a very lovely, very specific shade of purple. Looking back, it's sort of hard to imagine how color and commerce coexisted before we had something like the Pantone system. Language of color is really important for anybody who makes product. Anyone who designs product, not in their garage, but through some sort of a supply chain where they're gonna lose control of that color design, they need a language to use with the supplier and say, this is the color that I need. It's very difficult to just send them a sample and say, give me that color. Over time, Pantone stopped being a commercial printer and became a weird new thing, a company that taxonomizes colors. Meanwhile, Pantone's customer base expanded. Not just people who needed to print things, but people who did industrial design and wanted plastic or metal in a certain color. And people in fashion who wanted color matching specifically tailored to fabrics. And what Pantone sells those customers is access to its intellectual property, its library of colors and their associated numbers. Nowadays, you can find that library in digital form, but it's still available in physical forms as well like collections of dyed fabric samples and humble print books 
not unlike the one Larry Herbert made from scratch. If you're a graphic designer in Brooklyn, you bought your Pantone book four years ago, you spent $175 on it, you're good to go. At least you think you're good to go. Pantone would say buy a new book every year because colors fade, but you're working off of a $175 investment over four or five years. Ron Pateski says the bulk of Pantone's revenue still comes from selling these reference guides in all their forms. Identifying colors with precision has become a more and more scientific process over the years. You can use spectrophotometers now to measure the elements that make up a color and make sure that, for instance, the red on that aluminum cola can is the same as the red on the cardboard box it ships in, which is the same as the red on the vinyl billboard advertising it. In 2007, the Herbert family, after five decades of ownership, sold Pantone for $180 million to the X-Rite Corporation, a company that makes spectrophotometers and specializes in the hard science of color, which beefs up Pantone's claim to be the color authority. But Pantone has increasingly found more subjective ways to monetize color too. Pantone's consulting arm employs color psychologists who understand how colors can sway our emotions and our attachments. They work with companies to help figure out how best to use and manage colors in product lines or in corporate logos. Tiffany Blue, UPS Brown, and Starbucks Green are all official Pantone hues, and you'll get sued if you try to make a brand that competes with them using the same tint. We had companies that would send us a feather from a bird and say, we love this color, we want that to be our brand color, can you create it for us? Or they'd send us you know, a drawing that their kid did and say, I love this color combination. Can you create a product color palette for us? So in that case, we would help them create their color and then we would create a standard for it. And we might give them custom standards that they would use around the world to create their product. Pantone has also started selling a fair amount of merchandise through licensing deals, coffee mugs and sneakers and cookware and such, all of them in Pantone colors with their Pantone matching system numbers prominently featured. In 2010, a Pantone hotel opened in Brussels. Its website says it showcases the color of emotion with a distinctive hue on each colorist guest floor. People who use Pantone in their work, artists, ad agency creatives, fashionistas, have come to see it as a sort of shibboleth a way to self-identify as a citizen of the world of design. They've made Pantone a popular brand unto itself. But Pantone's biggest marketing coup began as a bit of a lark. It really started as a one-off event at Pantone where some of the management at the time uh, said, hey, this would be pretty cool. We should come up with a color of the year. And so it started in 2000 and just continued every year thereafter. The color of the year announcement is probably what Pantone's best known for among the general public. When Pantone proclaims Sand Dollar in 2006, or Mimosa in 2009, or Radiant Orchid in 2012, it gets coverage in newspapers and magazines and on the network morning shows. Color watchers, they wait for this moment each and every year, and it has arrived. I seriously never knew this. I'm so excited. That's Good Morning America, greeting the announcement of the 2020 color of the year, classic blue. Here's Good Morning America covering Pantone's 2018 announcement. 
This good. is the color. It's called Living Coral. Living Coral. Living Coral. It's a shame. And here's Good Morning America again covering the 2016 announcement. We could do this all day. And uh, Pantone has announced the color of the year for 2016, or should we say the colors? For the first time, there are two. Rose Quartz and Serenity. Yes, they named two colors in 2016. Rose Quartz and Serenity, more commonly known as pink and blue. Pantone linked this classic baby boy and baby girl color combo to the concept of gender fluidity, an example of the company's growing push to make the color of the year topical in a newsy way, which Ron Pateski says has been largely successful. You're taking world events, you're taking creative events, you're taking kind of the zeitgeist of what's happening around design. It is a very creative product. It is not science-based in any way, but we have great color psychologists who work with Pantone to come up with those colors. We had a pretty fun and large constituency of Pantone partners who would come together to come up with colors of the year or colors of the season. Naming a color of the year is sort of the opposite of Pantone's core business, which is the careful, scientifically sound codification of colors. So on the one hand, you have a Pantone setting industry standards and manufacturing spectrophotometers. And on the other hand, you have Pantone's shadowy cabal of color psychologists reading chicken entrails and declaring each year's it color. Seems like Pantone has a bit of a split personality. Ugh, I blame you guys, the media. You've ruined everything. Just stop. More on that when we come back. I am Jonathan Adler, Potter, designer, color enthusiast. Jonathan Adler is famous for designing high-end furniture and home furnishings. He is such a color enthusiast that he once invented a new color. He called it Chambeige, which is a portmanteau of champagne and beige. It's kind of a gray beige. It's the color of Halston. It has slightly pink undertones, and it's a very louche and hedonistic hue. Because Jonathan is obsessed with getting just the right color, he uses Pantone pretty much every time he designs something. Pantone is sort of the lingua franca of the design world. You know, it's how I communicate with vendors. It's just, we're constantly taking Pantone chips and putting them against each other and referencing them. It's just sort of how one communicates in the design world. It's like, it is an official color coding system. It feels almost like a government agency. But while he appreciates Pantone's role as a standards body for the world of visual design, Jonathan's less enchanted with Pantone's side hustle, forecasting the color of the year and portraying that forecast as a divination that emerges from the primordial color mists. I think that the idea that there's a team of color people traveling the world and scouring the world and observing things and then just getting into some sort of fugue state of inspiration, out comes this color, is a lovely narrative. But the fact is they got to do it every year. So I don't know. 
do they go into an annual fugue state? Or are they like, oh, shit, we got it. When's our color meeting for, all right, the deadline is we got to, like, come up with the candidates by, like, November 2. And then, you know, who's writing the press release about the narrative? Like, you know, it's a corporate world. Let's face it. But there's a corporate dimension to the color of the year that goes beyond just the promotional buzz for Pantone. Maybe the color of the year isn't an organic, infallible analysis of the color zeitgeist, but it does sort of make its own reality for people in the worlds that Pantone governs. As you get sort of lower down in the design food chain, uh, let's say you are a factory in China, you know, or a mill in India or whatever, I think that they probably are looking toward newsy information like that to kind of determine what they're going to do that they think will resonate with the design community. So in a way, while it means not that much to me at the kind of design world I inhabit, I think that it ends up having a huge impact in that some of the resources abroad that make the stuff that you will see in your local Target or Walmart or wherever might say, ah, okay, gray and yellow, those are the colors. And then six months later, you'll find gray and yellow in Target and Walmart. And so it sort of, it becomes true. What you don't know is that that sweater is not just blue. It's not turquoise. It's not lapis. It's actually cerulean. Consider this moment from the movie The Devil Wears Prada, in which Meryl Streep, playing the editor of a fashion magazine, rips into Anne Hathaway for not understanding the nuanced backstory of the blue cable-knit sweater she's wearing. In 2002, Oscar de la Renta did a collection of cerulean gowns. And then I think it was Yves Saint Laurent, wasn't it, who showed cerulean military jackets? I think we need a jacket here. Mm. And then cerulean quickly showed up in the collections of eight different designers. And then it uh, filtered down through the department stores and then trickled on down into some tragic casual corner where you no doubt fished it out of some clearance bin. However, This is more of a top-down model of color influencing rather than the bottom-up model that Jonathan Adler described. According to Meryl Streep's Fancy Pants magazine editor, Cerulean happened because Oscar de la Renta plucked it from the ether and chose it for a collection of gowns. But the thing is, Oscar de la Renta did not show any Cerulean anything in 2002. So why did the screenwriters pick that color? Well, guess what Pantone's first color of the year was a few years before The Devil Wears Prada was made? You got it. It was... Let me do my best Meryl here. Cerulean. So who exactly is choosing colors for whom? Color is a beautiful thing that just exists in the world. It's there for all of us. But when color intersects with capitalism, somebody has to set some standards and make some decisions and make some money. And Pantone has built an empire saying, why not us? Color me impressed. That's our show for today. This episode was produced by Jess Miller and Cleo Levin. Technical direction from Merritt Jacob. Gabriel Roth is Slate's editorial director for audio. Alicia Montgomery is the executive producer of podcasts at Slate. June Thomas is senior managing producer of the Slate Podcast Network. If you like this show and other podcasts from Slate, we're looking for some feedback from listeners like you. We have a brief survey that will only take a few minutes to do. You can find it at slate.com survey. And thank you. Next week on the show, selling diets in the anti-dieting age. 
nothing tastes as good as thin feels it's like have you had a burger like a good burger like what do you mean nothing y'all just don't like food that's next week on thrilling tales of modern capitalism if you like this show consider supporting us with a slate plus membership the first month only costs one dollar and you'll be able to listen to this show ad free plus you'll get access to bonus content from the slate podcast network Sign up now at slate.com slash thrilling plus.